Welcome to episode 88 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. I'm your host, Rachel Mason Nunn. Today on the show, I speak to Gemma McKinnon and Kerry McCarthy about their experience of the Seasonal Worker Program as farm owners and managers. The Seasonal Worker Program is a scheme that allows Pacific Islanders and Timor-Leste citizens to come to Australia to pick fruit. It's incredibly popular in the Pacific and has been growing rapidly, reaching over 10,000 workers last year. Especially in an era of tight aid budgets, looking at alternative ways to partner with the Pacific is key, and labour mobility benefits both Australia and the Pacific. Gemma is the Human Resources and Seasonal Worker Program Manager for Mountford Berries in Langford, Tasmania. The farm employs approximately 60 seasonal workers from Timor-Leste and Tonga. Kerry is the co-owner of Grace Kate Farms, which is located in the Darling Downs in Queensland. The farm has employed workers from Solomon Islands through the Seasonal Worker Program since 2012. On the episode, Gemma, Kerry and I discuss the Seasonal Worker Program and the challenges COVID-19 has posed. We discussed how prior to COVID-19, being selected for the program felt like winning the lottery for workers from the Pacific, but this year that experience has changed dramatically as workers have been stranded, in some cases unable to go home and in other cases unable to return to Australia. We discussed the implications this has for the workers themselves as well as the growing fear amongst farm owners of having a labour shortage come harvest season and what can be done. We have included relevant links in the show notes, along with recent articles from the Dev Policy blog on the Seasonal Worker Program in Australia. The Development Policy blog covers Pacific labour mobility in detail. Recent blogs look at how Canada and Germany have established safe pathways to allow farmwork migrants to re-enter post-COVID-19, and the efforts New Zealand is making to look after stranded seasonal workers and to help those who want to return to do so. Check out those blogs and others at devpolicy.org. Enjoy the episode. Kerry, Gemma, thank you both for speaking with me. To start with, can you both tell me about your farms and your engagement with the Seasonal Worker Program to date, starting with you, Kerry? Um, so I, my husband and I were actually farmers and owners of Grace Cape Farms on the Darling Downs in southeast Queensland, and we've been... Um, with the program, we joined in 2011 and we've been recruiting workers from the Solomon Islands since then. Okay. And you, Gemma? Uh, we're from uh, northern Tasmania. Um, I'm a daughter-in-law of a fourth-generation farmer, so my um, husband is fifth-generation farmer on Mountford. Um, so Mountford back in the day used to do sheep and cattle back in the 1800s. Um, and then they moved into wool and then prime lambs and cropping um, more recently. Um, and in 2014, we started our berry production business. Um, and we grow for Driscoll's Australia. Um, and we had our first seasonal workers arrive in 2017 um, from Timor, Timor Leste. Okay, so Kerry, you've been engaging with the Seasonal Worker Program for about 10 years now, and Gemma, about four years. Can you tell me what does a day in the life look like for a seasonal worker when they're in Australia? So with our workers, when they're in, a, in Australia, um, we're only a small farm. So we recruit at the, at the moment an average of 20 workers. So our workers basically will start early depending on the season. So, you know, very much guided by the sun. They'll arrive on the farm. Some will go down and, and start picking um, 
we take bins down to the paddock and then those bins as they're as they're filled come up to the packing shed and then we have a couple of the team drop off the, from the pickers and they'll um, go into the shed and they'll wash and pack the produce depending on the orders. So that's once we're in production and pretty much the whole day would be that. At the very beginning, um, you know, we've got planting, irrigating, uh, weeding and so forth to do. So we can split the teams up. Some may opt to do something one day, some may have a preference. So we're pretty flexible with them at the moment. But they work very, very hard. And just before we go to Gemma, can you comment on their accommodation and what they do in their spare time? Yeah, absolutely. So our workers obviously being repeat workers, um, we actually have a house in Clifton and one just on the outskirts of Clifton that they utilise. They have access to the to we have a, a work bus type thing and one of the workers can actually drive that as well. Very, very much a part of um, our community up here and, and very much loved and respected. So after after hours, um, after they finish work, obviously they're very good at having a, a rest. Um, they'll pop down to the local shops, maybe send some money home, do a bit of shopping. And on the weekends, they regularly attend church and church functions. Or there may be an odd shopping trip up to the um, larger areas of Toowoomba or Warwick. You made the point there, Kerry, that the workers send remittances home, which is obviously a key benefit of the program. Gemma, can we go to you now? Can you talk about some of the benefits that you have seen workers experience for having participated in the program? Yeah, so there's um, two main benefits, um, I say money and other things. Um, now, money, there's three main things that well, our guys, we have um, guys from Timor-Leste and Tonga. Um, majority come from Timor-Leste. Um, so the main things that they spend money on, um, they buy land and build a house. Um, they start a business or um, a venture of some sort um, and they pay for education, um, whether that be for themselves or for their children or maybe a brother or a sister or sometimes even a cousin or a second cousin ends up getting into that loop of um, paying for the education. The other things that they get, which is um, not seen in a monetary value, uh, things like leadership. Um, they, they learn to um, lead their peers um, on the farm. Um, so some of them take on supervisory roles. Um, some of them um, are the leaders of the group. So they, um, they learn to deal with conflict resolution and all those sorts of things. Um, cleaning and hygiene is another big one, which we try and teach them here. Um, so obviously standards in, in those countries are not as high as they are here um, for, for both like cleaning in a kitchen and also um, hygiene of themselves. So we try and teach them that. Um, English skills, they obviously living here, having to talk to shopkeepers when they go into the shop and everything, um, English and other farm skills. So we have workers who learn to drive tractors and forklifts. Um, they get better at driving buses and cars um, here um, and those sorts of other skills that you don't see from a direct monetary benefit. Kerry, I know that you visited one of the communities in the Solomon Islands where your workers have come from. Can you tell us about that experience? Oh, absolutely. So with us having a very small cluster of workers, um, 
majority of our workers are related or very well known to each other. So we have been for years uh, going over and staying with them in their village, which is um, very remote. There's no road access and no electricity. It's very much treated like royalty and part of the family when we do go over there. Um, lots of tears when we're leaving. So there really is an emotional attachment to, to the village. Um, we have seen, you know, as Gemma has said, you know, the economic benefit to these workers, you know, especially being so remote, job opportunities over there are, are very scarce. So it's like winning lotto for them, the opportunity to come here. So the wealth is spreading. They're, um, they're employing neighbouring workers from other villages to, to come and assist them with manual labour. Uh, so they're becoming employers themselves very much investing in their community church and the community schools. So the economic wealth um, is spreading through the greater village community over there. And as Gemma said, you know, they're, they're learning so much here. They're taking back ideas. Um, we have a very big chat with them about, you know, what they're going to do in the future, planning for the future. And, you know, some of those kids in that village school, you know, they're specifically going to school, a greater roll-up, um, are turning up every day so they can learn English and come and work in Australia. So bringing a lot of hope to those very isolated rural communities. It's wonderful. It's interesting to hear you refer to the seasonal worker program as like winning the lottery. Absolutely. They, it is like winning the lotto, you know. It's just an amazing opportunity. There are thousands and thousands of workers wanting to come to Australia. So the opportunity to be chosen and to actually succeed in the program and be a return worker is life-changing for them. Would you say the same, Gemma? Yeah, yeah. So in Timor, um, they have about 20,000 people on the list. Um, and that was out of one recruitment drive that they did two years ago or a year and a half ago now. Um, and so, the, and and from Timor coming to Australia, I think there's about a thousand workers a year, um, maybe a little bit less. So, and most of them are return workers. So when you're looking at a list of 20,000, um, you know, waiting for that opportunity to get chosen is, as you say, like winning the lotto. And they are so grateful for the opportunity and they are so just, uh, you know, they, they, yeah, I can't really explain how grateful they are for the opportunity um, because that when they come, they want to come back again. And that, and that is the amazing thing about this program is that you've got workers who want to continue to come back. And obviously there's benefits to you as farmers as well, now that there are over 10,000 seasonal workers coming to Australia from the Pacific every year. What are some of those benefits to you? You know, we, we only started off with two workers at the very beginning and, you know, a small family farm. We, we also run um, a cattle start and we do broadacre grain as well. So the veggies is a pretty main part of it, but, you know, not our total farm. Um, production. So we have expanded and grown our business over the years only because we know we have a reliable workforce that will show up to work every day when those workers return. Given us the confidence, as I said, to expand, to try new things, knowing that we've got people who will hit the ground running every day and have as much enthusiasm for our own farm as they do. 
very proud of the work that they do. Doing the right thing and being productive and pleasing us is very important to our workers. And, you know, you just don't get that anymore. It's just beautiful. Yeah. Um, so as um, Kerry said, re return reliable, trained workforce. Um, and I think that's really key in this program is that they're, they're an already trained workforce coming to us. So, um, for example, go back uh, four years ago before we had the seasonal work program, we were half the size we are and we had a turnover of 400 staff. Now, this season, oh, the season just been, we had um, 120 workers and we're double the size we were four years ago. Um, so, we, we have... Um, we have a local cohort of about 45% um, and then our seasonal workers um, with that. And there is no way that we would have been able to expand the way we have and employ the local workforce that we do um, without the seasonal workers. It sort of goes hand in hand. Um, we have uh, four, uh, five salaried staff um, and, again, if we weren't the size we are and we didn't have the seasonal workers, we wouldn't be able to have five salaried staff on um, of locals um, doing that. Um, the other benefits that I see is I've got two small children and Carrie, I know you've got children um, and the benefit to our kids seeing different cultures is incredible. Like our kids, mine are only very small, um, you know, they're three and two, but they just love going to to the other with to over to the workers and being able to um, hang out with them listen to their language um, and eat their food it's amazing I can't wait to I need to start learning from them their their food um, so those extra things that um, not only are a benefit to us personally um, but also there's the benefit to our business which is great so you're both painting a very rosy picture, but of course there are some challenges and we'll get to the challenges that COVID has posed in a moment. But before we do that, Gemma, can you comment on some of the challenges that workers may have faced in settling into Australia or challenges that they faced once they arrived here, including a pregnancy or other healthcare issues? Yeah. So um, we, uh, I feel like every single new person that comes has trouble. Um, so that's, it's nothing new to us. Um, the, when we first had our first slot of 15, um, they were all brand new and they had no one to lead them. So we were really heavily involved with taking them shopping every week and um, showing them how to use their bank cards and showing them how to use microwaves and all that sort of stuff that they don't usually use. Um, so, but once we actually get back to um, having some return workers and some new workers, those new those return workers can train those new workers in that way, which becomes really valuable to us. Um, but yeah, they all uh, they're, they're so used to just sitting at home doing nothing or going for a walk down the street um, to see a friend that when they actually have to work, they get up at six o'clock in the morning to work every day. That it takes them a good. I would say two months to get right into the swing of working hard every day, um, five to six days a week. Um, so yeah, it's not all it's not all rosy in the beginning, but then we get there. Pregnancy is really hard because um, 
they they come with they have to have health insurance but pregnancy isn't included in health insurance and we want to give all our girls the opportunity to continue to work um, in while they're pregnant, but it becomes quite hard um, for a couple of reasons. Any medical expenses that they incur while they're here, um, they have to pay for full upfront. Um, so that makes it really difficult. Um, the other thing is that um, the work is not easy. You know, there's heavy lifting involved, there's bending down, there's standing up, there's, it's hot. Um, and most of the time, the pregnant women start to um, find it quite difficult. Um, so when we explain everything with their insurance and everything, most of them will elect to go home fairly quickly um, once they actually tell us that they're pregnant because sometimes it takes a while before they'll tell us. Um, and it's usually when we suspect that um, we, we raise that question with them. Kerry, what are some of the other challenges that you've seen the workers face? Look, I, I think a big, big thing, like my work is, you know, different scenarios, different experiences, depending on where the workers come from. As I have um, said, our workers are very remote. Um, they're used to a lot of physical labour. So the actual physical side of things and working all day is not an issue for them. A lot of homesickness is a really big issue. Um, you know, the men are at home every day with the children, the school's just in the next village, you know, they're surrounded by family the whole time and lots and lots and lots of little children climbing all over them and so forth. Um, they make a big sacrifice when they come, they miss, may miss out, you know, deaths in the family and um, that, that kind of family bond is very important to them. Babies being born, their own babies being born while they're working in Australia. So. They weigh up whether it's worth it or not. And um, yeah, as I said, it's life changing for them and they won't want to miss the opportunity. Just in regards to the pregnancies, um, like, you know, Gemma has had that experience, but, you know, with, with the COVID restrictions, we had something like across Australia, at least 15 pregnancies happening. And uh, a lot of uh, some of those workers, probably about 50% have been able to be repatriated home. We've had a couple of babies born in Australia. Um, without medical cover um, and then there's also the um, the complications as well so you know it's great if the pregnancy is going well but if there are issues well it becomes a very expensive exercise so we're really pushing for the Australian government to offer more support and uh, in regards to welfare of these pregnant ladies who are stuck in Australia. Okay, let's start talking about the impact of COVID-19 now. At the start of the lockdown, it was estimated that there were around 7,000 workers stranded in Australia without access to government benefits and not all of them in work. What has been your experience with the seasonal worker program during the lockdown period? So there was a lot of, and, and Gemma can probably um, elaborate a little bit more on this. So there was a lot of, um, lot of extra work for approved employers to care for those workers. Um, you know, mental health issues, you know, talking about the workers' welfare to begin with. So they are stuck in Australia. They cannot get home. And, you know, they're getting phone calls from home. Please come home. There's no flights. So very, very emotional, um, huge emotional roller coaster for those workers. So uh, very difficult times for employers and workers. Some workers have been repatriated home. Um, some countries have not offered flights home at all. So 
out of our control, out of the workers' control, and that's a, that's a really big issue. A lot of work has been done by approved employers to redeploy workers. I know the Tasmanian crew down there, um, hundreds and hundreds of workers, they've worked really hard to try and find them employment through other parts of Australia during their downturn. Uh, a lot of red tape with that movement um, has restricted it flowing really, really well. But we've tried to um, cover the workers as much as possible and offer them alternatives. Yeah, go on from that, Kerry. Like, as we said, we had in Tasmania with, um, we're quite a tight-knit community down here. Um, we've There's a group of um, about five farms who have seasonal workers um, and we're all grow for Driscoll's berries. We had about 450 workers um, with us all and we managed to send them all um, up to the mainland to get them work, which was a huge effort. Um, and it was uh, led by one farm in particular um, and, yeah, we all sort of followed on on their coattails with that, which is really good. But um, as Kerry said, the f when it first, when COVID first started happening, the workers were terrified. They were absolutely terrified for a couple of reasons. Um, all this scaremongering on social media, um, our Timor Leste guys are very heavily on social media and on Facebook and they just are saying, oh, you know, you, you can die from it. I'm going to get it the second I go into town. And they were really, really worried. So um, we did as much as we could. Um, we had 60 workers and we ended up actually in the first, we did for about eight to 10 weeks, um, we brought their groceries to the farm because they didn't actually want to leave the farm and didn't want to leave their accommodation. So um, I was uh, the personal shopper for them all, which was uh, definitely a learning curve. <laughs> um, anyway, we found successfully found work for all of them on the mainland. That hasn't come without issues, um, both from the administration of the program and the red tape that we had to go through and, and just the, the extra information that we have to give, which seems completely pointless. Um, and then once their contracts have finished over the winter, they hopefully will come back to us um, in the summer to, um, to complete another season with us. But we're anticipating that's going to really be a drain on them because they will have essentially, by the end of their contract with us, they'll have worked for 18 months straight. Um, you know, we're going to try and give our guys a bit of time off as much as we can, a week or two here if we can. Um, but yeah, it's it's going to be um, a difficult ride. They're also already seeing them lethargic, mental health issues, um, and as Kerry said, the drain on not only them but us as approved employers is huge. Um, you know, I, I was working four days a week. I'm now working five days a week with a part timer with me, um, just to try and keep on top of all of this stuff um, that we have to do and the stress that it puts on. It it, it honestly keeps me awake at night um, thinking about my guys in another part of the country, whether they're being looked after properly, um, is everything going okay? Do they like picking oranges after they've been picking berries? Um, so that, it, yeah, it is really stressful. It sounds incredibly stressful. Has the government been making the situation easier or harder? Um, <laughs> uh, look, there is, they have been 
okay about it and and understanding that moving workers is is what has to happen and and that but they haven't made it easy to do um and we basically formulated a plan us here in tas said this is what we want to do um can we um can we do this and it was like yes but you've got to fill out this form and you've got to put this paperwork in and it just it, I, and you know there's probably hoops that they have to jump through with other departments and everything so we do understand in some ways but in other ways it was like we're in the middle of a pandemic come on can we just you know let it go so i i could add to that um well, you know, none of us have ever dealt with COVID before and, and the sheer scale of the whole pandemic and the change in our way of life in Australia for those workers who are overseeing the program as well as those workers at the coalface is, is just huge. So I think we have all learned a lot um, and how to do things better. But a big difference is that, you know, the, um, the program is run by... Um, government in Canberra and we're basically farmers at the coalface who are very uh, adaptable to change very quickly to make things happen and um, it can bring about, about a lot of frustrations just having to deal with the um, so-called legalities of it all, uh, the paperwork, you know, whereas we're just quick, quick, this has got to happen, let's just make this happen somehow. So. Um, coming from two different backgrounds and trying to make the program work has um, certainly got its challenges. What are the consequences of some of the delays that you're encountering? Well, in regards, Gemma will be able to vouch for this, you know, in regards to the workers in Tasmania, you know, um, they've still got to pay for somewhere to live. They've still got to pay for their house insurance. And if work's run out on one contract and they're waiting to be redeployed, and then subsequently quarantined, you know, they could be six to eight weeks without any income at all. It is um, lots of challenges. And as we said with COVID, you know, with the strict health insurance coverage that they have, a lot of situations they're not actually covered for. You know, the longer they stay in Australia, the more pre-existing illnesses will come to the forefront. Uh, we've already mentioned pregnancies, a lot of mental health issues. Um, criminal behaviour because they're going a little bit stir crazy, um, very frustrated they cannot get home, we've had workers absconding um, and then we've got those others that you know just want to get on with the job and just start working the next day and they can't understand the delay so yes it has been very costly for employers and especially for those workers. Yeah the, um, the delays that, that we talk about, uh, um, you know, we had one lot of workers who went up to far north Queensland who sat in, They we sent them up there, they got into their accommodation, they sat in their accommodation waiting for the department to um, approve a recruitment plan and they waited for three weeks with no work. Now that was simply just because the recruitment plan kept getting flicked back and forth because of minor um, details that, should have been just looked over and said, get these guys working and we'll sort out these details later. The bulk of it's right. Let's get these guys working and we can sort it out. But no, they weren't allowed to work and they had to sit there for three weeks. Do you think it stopped feeling like they won the lottery? <laughs> Sometimes, absolutely. You know, 
I think it's a lot. It was a lot easier, you know, the the isolation. You know, we're farmers. We self isolate very well, <laughs> anyway. But it was a lot easier for return workers and those without young children and expectant wives at home. I think um, coped a lot better without so much pressure from home. So when we think about the way forward, then Gemma Mountford Berry's harvest period begins in October with strawberries before moving on to raspberries in November and blackberries in January. So you've got a harvest season ahead of you with Australia's borders closed to all but Australian citizens. Are you worried that there might not be enough labour to pick the upcoming harvest or that your workers that have gone to the mainland won't be able to return? Yeah, so um, we're, we, we've skipped past that worry because we know that we're, we're basically budgeting for the fact that um, we won't be able to get any new workers in. Um, we're fairly confident um, about getting our workers from the mainland back to us. Um, not saying that they will all return. You know, they have their choice, so they can go home if they can can do it. Um, Timor, there is at least one flight running per week, um, mainly for freight purposes, but they can get on it if they um, have sufficient reason to. So some workers may elect to go home, which is fine. Um, and so we're just looking at uh, what other options that we can have. Um, so that Driscoll's Growers Group that I was talking about um, that we, we in Tasmania, we're looking at, we've estimated we're going to be short about 1,000 workers for next harvest. So we're looking at strategies to engage local um, people, especially those who may have lost a job recently um, and maybe on Job Seeker. Um, to come and work for us and um, Costa and um, the other berry farms in Taz. So we're looking at strategies to try and encourage them to do that. Um, backpackers is another hard one. We, we need to start talking to government as to, because a lot of backpackers that were in Tasmania have gone to the mainland to find work. Um, so how do we get them back into Tasmania? Because um, at the moment the borders are to TAS are closed and so how do we get them back in here? Um, so that's another thing that we're looking at whether we um, pre-employ them and talk to government and see if that's enough to be able to get them back into TAS. Um, Tasmanian government has been very supportive of that because they understand um, that our labour requirements and not only in berries, there's apples, there's cherries, there's broccoli, there's, um, you know, huge amounts of um, fruits and vegetables in Tasmania that are all picked by hand that need um, workers, seasonal workers to come. So we, we talk around about 8,000 workers in, in Tasmania over summer um, to pick fruits and vegetables. Yeah, we're coming up with backup plans if that all fails. Um, and the, those backup plans are looking like turning off water to certain parts of the paddock to, um, to just stop the crop growing, um, stuff that we've already planted. Um, because if we can't, there's no point in adding extra effort into it if we can't um, get the people to pick it. Uh, so essentially what it looks like and and you know we're not unique the rest of australia is in exactly the same boat um is that if we can't get workers into the country extra workers into the country fruit and vegetables will just rot there in the fields um and there will be a supply shortage in our supermarkets because of that that's a really frightening thought kerry did you want to add to that 
Yeah, like, you know, it was just um, COVID has certainly exacerbated the, the whole situation and especially for uh, Queensland and New South Wales farmers to come through that terrible drought, uh, November, December and, and all of the fires. We had a pretty good season after that and, and now we're hit with COVID and, and the restrictions that that brings. So um, we're pretty much playing the typical farmer stance at the moment that it'll be okay and something will work out, but uh, we definitely will need to rely on the local workforce a lot more. Um, as, as you know, we, we joined the seasonal worker program because we were having difficulty sourcing local labor, local reliable labor. So at this stage, not really sure what we're gonna do. So we hope that Pacific bubble certainly does happen and um, that we can mobilise our workers. I know the economic downturn in the Pacific Islands because um, of no new seasonal workers coming to Australia or bringing the financial benefit back home will heavily impact them as well. So hopefully those Pacific countries will be just as keen as the employers in Australia to get that Pacific travel bubble happening. We've done a few episodes now on the Pacific travel bubble, including with Richard Curtin, who you know, and at this stage, it's it's really not clear if it is going to go ahead. If I personally had to hazard a guess, I would say it won't go ahead this year, which probably isn't what you want to hear. What are your thoughts about the proposal? Do you think it is feasible? Um, at this stage, I'm not um, terribly confident, but as the months go on and uh, COVID um, uh, incidence numbers reduce in Australia. I think um, a dedicated uh, travel bubble, um, you know, not, not for visitors, but for workers, uh, essential workers uh, may happen. Um, as I said, you know, this is financially impacting all of those Pacific countries who are heavily reliant. I think Tonga's um, economic benefit from income from the seasonal worker program has is the, is the largest portion of their um, income over there. So a lot of Pacific countries are gonna to wanna to get that, that cash flowing again. Uh, the workers are gonna be keen to come out. We're gonna be very excited to have them with um, other limited opportunities that we could source labor from. So let's just hope that it, it does eventuate. Yeah, I'll just add to that, Kerry. Um, so the, the travel bubble, um, as, as we sort of call it, uh, I think we need to get away from calling it a travel bubble because it won't be. Um, what we're looking at calling it is um, an exemption for seasonal workers to come into the country because, you know, we're not saying that they need to come into the country and start work the next day, do their quarantine um, and and make sure that they are free of it. Um, most of the, the Pacific countries don't have it anyway. Um, come into the country, help us as much as we can help them because that's what the program is about. Um, now, is it realistic? Uh, the government has moved mountains during this pandemic and they can do it. It's just going to take a couple of ministers to be brave enough to stand up for it and say we need to do it. Now, I understand that they're worried about the backlash from... Um, from the community on, you know, the um, rising unemployment um, rate and everything, but it, that's not going to help us. It, it, unfortunately, Australians uh, don't want to do the work, not because 
it's too hard or too physical or anything, but because they don't want to move outside of the city to go to a regional area to pick things for a few weeks. They, they, and if they needed, to, if they wanted to do that and they wanted to do it full time, they would have to follow the harvest trail. So during the winter, they would have to go north and during the summer, they would have to go south. And it's just very unrealistic for um, Australians to do that, especially the Australians that we're talking about. So those ones who they may have a house or something in Launceston, for example, they've got to go north, they've got to pay their mortgage on their house in Launceston while they also rent a house up in Queensland while they're picking fruit. It's just really unrealistic to think that the people in the cities or, or anything are going to move around the country to do those jobs. Um, now, another example, Canada. Canada have just had exemptions for their seasonal workers to come in. We can do it. It's Canada's doing it. We can do it. <laughs> I just want to make that really clear. I, I would assume New Zealand may take the same path. Um, but, yeah, yeah. It, it's, I don't feel like there's another option. The argument that you've just made to me, presumably you've also made that to the government. How are those conversations going? Yeah, so the um, AFPA, which is the Australian Fresh Produce Alliance, um, headed by Michael Rogers, has been working hard um, to talk to the government about these issues and to demonstrate that Australians really aren't applying for the work. I mean, at the moment, there's a bit of, you know, because of JobKeeper, Australians aren't applying for the work. So it makes it a bit hard to show at the moment. But even once we come out of that, I suspect that those rates of people applying for harvest work will be similar. Um, they talk about around about the 8% mark of Australians are actually applying um, for work. Um, so, and that's just not enough for what we need because of the backpackers who have left the country. Um, so there's not enough backpackers in the country and the seasonal workers we can't get in anymore at the moment. Can I also add that, um, you know, a part of being approved employer before we are allowed to recruit any Pacific workers is, you know, as we said, it's heavily regulated. We need to do local labour market testing and prove to the government that there is no local workforce to take up those positions. So any Australians that are wanting to apply for the work will be offered jobs first. That does raise the question of whether the agricultural industry in Australia is too reliant on migrant workers. I, I personally think that there will always be a reliance on migrant workers. Um, you know, Australia is a very big country, a lot of farmland, and you know, a lot of a lot of the workers that or visitors that come, workers that come, Australian residents, um, immigrants, um, they cluster to the coastline. So, you know, we're sitting here in rural Australia saying, we're here, you know, come on out. So I think um, there will always be a huge reliance and, you know, we just have to see what happens with this Pacific travel bubble or um, essential worker bubble. I know that Europe are doing it as well. They're actually um, bringing their workers in with chartered aircraft because they're relying on them as well. It's a very fluid industry um, driven by market demand. So, it's not a constant and a lot of Australians don't like that. They like to have that security. So 
if um, you know, we will always rely. So maybe the opportunity is there to bring in the much discussed ag visa run by the Department of Agriculture. Now might be the perfect time. <laughs> um, yeah. The other the other thing is, is that we're not the only country that relies on um, migrant workforce to for the agriculture industry. Um, most countries around the world will rely on that. So it's not unique to Australia and we're not the only ones who, who say, oh, we'll give the job to someone else. Um, so I, I think that's um, an argument that we can't really have. Um, and as Kerry said, it will be here for the long haul. Um, and, you know, there, there really isn't another option. The other often heard criticism of the seasonal worker program relates to the treatment of workers on farms in Australia. What do you say to those critics? Um, I, look, I, I think the workers should speak for themselves. You will always have the situations where something has gone wrong, um, miscommunication, perhaps the employer has done the wrong thing, but uh, the program is so important to us. If, if an employer is blatantly doing the wrong thing and mistreating their workers, well, we don't want them in the program. We appreciate our workers, we value our workers, and our workers just, you know, as, as I've said, this opportunity is gold to them. So please don't put all, all the eggs in one basket and take this opportunity away from those workers. Yep, agreed, Kerry. I just can't um, explain enough that don't listen to what the media says all the time um, because they just take the things that they want and all of a sudden um, you've got this story about um, 50 people hot bedding in a three-bedroom accommodation and it's not fair um, because they aren't the facts um, and they're, they're, you know, hearsay. Um, and as Kerry said, if there are people out there who are doing blatant, blatantly doing the wrong thing, we don't want them because we need this program to work. We want this program to work for the long haul and we don't want those people in here. N number one, we don't want our workers and our friends um, and their friends to be exploited. Um, and number two, it's the wrong thing. You, know, it, you can make money by doing the right thing. And, and that's essentially what it is about. People are, if people are exploiting workers, they're exploiting it to make money. Okay, so to finish then, if you were both in charge of the seasonal worker program, particularly in light of the impacts of COVID, what would you change and how would you do things differently? Um, can I, I just like to add, you know, one of the biggest hindrances to the expansion of the program, you know, apart from a lot of bureaucratic red tape um, that a lot of employers aren't willing to confront and to join the program, they'd rather just source their labour from somewhere else. A huge issue is illegal cash labour in Australia from illegal workers, whether they be visa overstayers, they may be Aussies on welfare that take cash on the side. We really need to clamp down on this industry and we need the Australian government to take it seriously. It's impacting um, the reputation of the seasonal worker program because any Pacific Islander that gets off a bus, people just assume that they're working under the seasonal worker program. So it's not fair on farmers who are paying the correct wage um, and it's not fair on the workers who don't get that correct wage and who don't get the protection that they would 
um, being legally employed. So a lot of vultures out there doing the wrong thing and encouraging illegals to work for them. And we really need to get rid of that industry to begin with. Then we will see the seasonal worker program grow, the Pacific Labor Mobility programs grow with confidence. And a lot of this, um, this chat about um, you know, terrible treatment of workers may go away because you may find that a lot of those workers are not working legally to begin with. I would love to see um, some form of ag visa specifically for the Pacific come into force run by the Department of Agriculture um, who understand the seasonal requirements, um, who understand uh, what the farmers have to go through to get their, their food on the table for, for the greater Australian. So, you know, it, look, I, I think so much official research has been done by you guys in at the Dev Policy as well. Um, maybe it's time to look at some changes. Yeah, Kerry's talking about policy. I'll talk about the mechanics. Um, and the mechanics of it is specifically less paperwork and more visits. Um, you know, we every time someone does something wrong or is there's a breach of a, a contract, there's another layer of paperwork that we have to fill out. Um, and I think that, you know, instead of having 20 people stationed in Canberra and Bendigo, um, you know, emailing and sending out paperwork, come bring us a coffee. Um, come and sit down with us five or six times a year um, while our workers are here and talk to us and see and have a look at what we're doing for these workers. Everything may not be perfect all the time and that it can't be expected, um, but come and see that we're trying to do the right thing. Um, and then you can, they can plan, they can plan for the future. So if we're saying we're going to do an expansion in two years' time, which means we're going to need another 30 workers, well, here we go. We can plan for two years' time, but none of those questions get asked um, and, and there's no one there who's actually coming to talk to us about it. Um, you know, they, they try and at the moment they're trying to do a few um, Skype things with us and everything but it more feels like an interrogation of have you completed this have you completed that paperwork and everything rather than an actual discussion on how can we help you do what you need to do to keep these workers in work and safe absolutely so a lot of directives coming um in our direction um but not much opportunity to talk about, you know, how we can expand or the assistance that will be given to expand the program and support the workers. A lot of the community groups are fantastic. So, um, you know, church groups, um, Pacific Island diaspora. I'm in conversations with the Pacific Island Council in Queensland at the moment about how they can help workers, you know, in those inc incidences such as the pregnancies, the mental health, the homesickness, you know, to help them connect and take a little bit of responsibility away from the approved employers so we can get on with the nitty gritty of running our business. That's a great note to finish on. Thank you both for your time. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks, Rachel. That was episode 88 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and we'll see you next week.